God, that is a precious song, words, reflecting biblical truth, even the truth that we read this morning out of Hebrews chapter 11, and containing those precious words that by faith your people awaited the longed-for Messiah, the one promised back in the garden, the one anticipated throughout the history of your people in varying degrees of clarity, the one anticipated in the prophets and the one who appeared and that we read about on the pages of Scripture, witnessed by a nation. And we pray that we would not be like those among that nation who did not see your glory and respond in faith to you, but those who saw your glory by the ministry of the Holy Spirit and see your glory in the pages of Scripture and respond to that glory with lives of faith and obedience and trust in you. We pray this morning as we continue to look at your rebuke of these leaders who did not by faith respond and understand the prophets that we would be both warned and that we would be encouraged by considering also the opposite of their error, which is a model and measure then of true righteousness. So we ask you to come, Holy Spirit, and bless our time together, and we pray this in the name of the one who is risen on our behalf. In Christ's name, amen. Well, open your Bibles back up to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, we are going to continue marching through this chapter, and though it's more like a Bible study this morning with so many shoveling out of snow, it's good. It's good for us to be together and for us to continue to consider the Lord's words here in Matthew chapter 23. This morning, we will look at verses 16 through 22, and as we come to this portion of this chapter, we come now to the second category of Jesus' exposure of the false leaders in Israel. The first one, of course, we've already covered in verses 13 and verses 15, as we saw that he confronts them for corrupting God's salvation, for corrupting God's salvation through their religious system that that hid the glory of God from his people and his grace from them also. Now, he's going to confront them with a specific example of the previous rebuke, namely they're adding to their religion of Israel a complicated system that hid from God's people his glory. And so he's addressing that very issue this morning as he confronts a complex religious system that hides the truth of God. Now the tragedy, of course, is that this deception comes from those who hold the position of teaching truth. And as with all false teachers, their error is that they are not pursuing the truth. They are not pursuing the truth with all of their being. They are, in fact, really only pursuing themselves. And now Jesus has been rebuking them for this throughout his entire ministry. Most recently, in verse 5 of Matthew 23, he said... Words we're familiar with, but they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. In other words, they were leaders and teachers of God's people for themselves and not for the glory of God. We see the same thing mentioned in Galatians 6, don't turn there, as Paul is rebuking the false teachers that had come in there, which actually were offsprings 
uh, perversions of even what Jesus is rebuking in Matthew 23. These Judaizers who had come in who, to confuse the faith of the church in Galatia. He says of these false teachers in verse 13 of chapter 6. They desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. In other words, they are pursuing their own glory, not the glory of God. And so it is with these leaders. An old church father by the name of Ignatius... Uh, we have recorded from him letters that he wrote to different churches while he was most likely on his way to be martyred for his testimony of faith in Christ. In one of these letters to the Trillians, he says this, and he's speaking of false teachers. These people, while pretending to be trustworthy, mix Jesus Christ with themselves. Like those who administer a deadly drug with honeyed wine, which the unsuspecting victim accepts without fear, and so with fatal pleasure drinks down death. And so he describes the false teachers of his day, and again that describes all false teachers who are victims of their own iniquity and hypocrisy. And again, essentially what they are doing is they are mixing themselves with the truth of God. That is again to say they sought not the good of the people but their own exaltation. They did not seek the pure word of God but they added false and deceiving traditions of men that came from men and were not from God. And as Jesus said earlier, by those traditions have in fact invalidated the word of God. And as it is in their case, a whole nation drank it down. They drank it down to the dregs, this false religious system. And it's no different in the history of man, and it's no different, of course, in our own day. Indeed, Paul warns us that people will, in the last days which we are in, seek out teachers who will tickle the ears of their hearers. Teachers whose doctrine makes the hearers feel more comfortable with themselves rather than causing them to long for God as He is. Teachers who gladly rejoice in the approval of men rather than the approval of God, which is the exact charge Jesus lays at the feet of these religious leaders in John chapter 12, verse 43. But God is a God of truth. He's revealed the truth and he's called his shepherds and his leaders to speak the truth in his name. And he utterly rejects the religious complexity of men that hides his glory or his holiness behind a false system and, in fact, fosters unrighteousness rather than righteousness. And again, this is what Jesus will address this morning. Read with me as I read out of Matthew chapter 23, verses 16 through 22. Woe to you, blind guide, to say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar, swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. 
Go back up to verse 16 and let's notice first then the tragedy of spiritually blind leaders. The tragedy of spiritually blind leaders. Now he says here at the beginning of verse 16, Woe to you, you blind guides. You blind guides. And this is a powerful word picture. Indeed, these are two terms that you would not expect to see together and that you certainly would not want to see together. Those who are blind and those who are also guides. Now the term blind refers, of course, to the inability to see. The inability to see. Physically or literally, it refers to eyes that do not work. It's the physical inability to see, eyes that are useless. Jesus encountered this repeatedly, of course, throughout his ministry as he healed people that had physical blindness. They're a picture, most likely, of the spiritual blindness that also he came to relieve men of. This was a common in the ancient Near East The condition of blindness, one said, the brightness of the sun, dust and dirt, all encourage inflammation of the eyes, which may lead to blindness as it did to many in that time. Now due to its commonality and its seriousness, it was an apt illustration for the inability to see in a spiritual sense, which is how Jesus is using it here. Obviously he's not referring to those who are physically blind, but those who are bearing the condition of spiritual blindness and also who are professing to be guides to his people. As with, phys- as with the literal uses, usage, in the spiritual sense, in the metaphorical usage, it refers to the inability to see spiritually. In other words, the inability to discern spiritual truth. In Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 2, verse 14, he says this, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. In other words, spiritual truth is cut off from those who do not have the Spirit of God. They can hear it, it can be understood intellectually, but it cannot be understood spiritually and responded to spiritually. That is the condition of being spiritually blind. And this is, of course, the devastating condition of all men apart from the work of regeneration, apart from the work of the new birth, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in a dead sinner bringing them to life. Yet it's tragedy here is that it is true of these leaders. They are unable to discern and understand the word of God. They are in bondage to their sin and it is because of their refusal to listen and to respond to God's authority. These who should be the voice of truth are in fact the voice for error. They claim to speak God's truth and yet to them scripture was a closed book. It was a closed book. And this is sadly true of the history of much, or much of the history of Israel. Turn back just briefly to Isaiah chapter 29. I want to set the context for this by giving an illustration from this same condition, the same situation at the time of the prophet Isaiah, written around the 8th century B.C. Get verses 9 through 14. He says in verse 9, Isaiah does, speaking to a nation whom is being prepared for judgment, particularly the tribes of Judah, who are being prepared for judgment because of 
their failure to heed and to listen to the word of God. He says in verse 9, be delayed and wait. In other words, he's confronting them for their hesitation to respond in faith to the promise of deliverance that he has given to them. And then he says, blind yourselves and be blind. They become drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured over you a spirit of deep sleep. He has shut your eyes, the prophets. He has covered your heads, the seers. The entire vision will be to you like the words of a sealed book, which men, when they give it to the one who is literate, saying, please read this, he will say, I cannot, for it is sealed. Then the book will be given to the one who is illiterate, saying, please read this, and he will say, I cannot read. Then the Lord said, because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by root. Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously marvelous, and the wisdom of their wise men will perish, and the discernment of their discerning men will be concealed. Again, he is addressing a nation who is blinded by their sin, their refusal to listen to the word of God as it was both written and as it was given through his prophets. They refused to listen. They refused to put their trust wholly in their God and they trusted in other things, ultimately trusting in themselves. And so God blinded them and he made them unable to see what they should have clearly and most plainly seen. So he says to them again, that he, has, he says, blind yourselves and be blind. And then he says in verse 10, the Lord has poured over you a deep sleep. The Lord has done this. He's done this. You've done it to yourselves and the Lord has done this to you. This reality, which is true of all men, is captured well by Calvin. Commenting on this verse, he says this in verse 10. As it belongs to him to give you eyes to see and to enlighten minds of the spirit of judgment and understanding, so he alone deprives us of all light. When he sees that by a wicked and depraved hatred of the truth, we of our own accord wish for darkness. Accordingly, when we are blind, and especially in things so plain and obvious, we perceive his righteous judgment. Did you get that? When something is so plain and obvious and should be seen, such as the revelation of God, and yet it is unseen, it is a testimony not only to God's judgment, but the righteousness of God's judgment in our refusal to respond to what God has said. And so his judgment lies then, as he says, shutting their eyes, the prophets, and covering their heads, the seers. In other words, everything he has revealed, his glory, his salvation, his instruction, is by judgment of God cut off from those who would not listen. And scripture then becomes to them a closed book, a sealed up book for both the people and the prophet. One has commented on this condition in these words, which I think are helpful. All among the people, therefore, are unable to read. Before them, the revelation of God has been presented in clear words. To the learned and wise of this world, it was meaningless, for it was to them as a sealed writing. 
To the ignorant it came as without meaning, for they did not even have the ability to understand a revelation. All, therefore, without exception, were spiritually obtuse. Before the revelation of God, proclaimed through His faithful prophets, shone forth in the majesty and the glory of the powerful word. But over the entire people a deep sleep had fallen. It was a nation drunken and tottering about, groping, but never able to find the truth. End quote. And the reason for this is their hypocrisy. It is their hypocrisy. In verse 13, he says, These people draw near with their words, honor me with their lips, but they remove their hearts far from me. That is the exact charge, and it is quoting this verse that Jesus lays at the feet of the Pharisees for their perverting the word of God through their hypocrisy and the traditions of men in Matthew chapter 15, verses 8 through 9. They have, as one has mentioned, the technical skills to understand God's word, but they lack the spiritual insight which would enable them to see the plain meaning. So, of course, the situation is hopeless for the common person. He cannot even read, let alone open and read. The church today is in a perilously perilously similar situation. The pews are full of people who look to someone who can read, but for all too many who can do so, the document is still sealed, end quote. Again, a tragic, tragic situation. There are many who have the technical skills, the intellectual ability, just like these leaders, the religious devotion and motivation, but they have no ability in all of those things to discern the truth, and they have no spiritual perception regarding the nature of God and the intent of the law that they supposedly love. You can turn back to Matthew chapter 23. Now, in fact, God in mercy would change this situation. He said in verse 18, as you're turning back, if Isaiah 29, On that day, this day that God is bringing, the deaf will hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see, but it would not be that generation whom he was addressing. And it would not be the generation who saw the glory of Christ in his appearing and rejected him. They saw the greatest revelation of God's truth, the greatest revelation of God's word, the incarnate word himself, the son made flesh, but they missed it because of blindness. And so of the leaders, Jesus said, just as those in Isaiah's day, that they are blind guides of the blind, Matthew 15. Of the people, he said to them, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand, which he said in Matthew 13, 13. I want to make one other note here before we move on, because this is very important for us to see, and very insightful for us to understand, an insight that's important for us to understand. The greatest manifestation of their blindness is that they did not see the glory of Christ before them. It is not that they did not see the person of Christ. It is not that they did not see and acknowledge the works of Christ. It is not that they did not see and have a little intellectual understanding of the words of Christ. It is that in all of those things that they saw and that they heard and that they beheld, they did not see in them the glory of Christ. They did not see in them the glory of God. They did not see in them God in a way that captured their hearts and drew them to faith and repentance and trust and obedience in God. 
And that is the difference. And that is just how it is today. So Paul said of the Jews of his day, and this of course goes to those who are in the Christian church who don't truly know Christ. He said that they have, they read scripture and yet they read it as with a veil over their face. He says their minds were hardened for until this day at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. He says later, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. And what is it that they do not see? They do not see this. That they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. The manifestation of spiritual life is to see the glory of God, to love the glory of God, to respond to the glory of God, and particularly for us in the face of Jesus Christ. This is always the true test of salvation and of spiritual life in ourselves or in any teacher. And so the question is, for us, before we move on, is do you see the glory of Christ in the pages of Scripture? Do you read Scripture in a way that God is revealed there in a way that captures your heart, that makes you be brought to repentance, to long to obey Him, to incite in you a spirit of worship? Or does it not? Is that something that is foreign to you? And Scripture is then, in that sense, a closed book, full of rules, full of words, full of information, but not full of glory. Well, that's exactly what it was to them, and so he calls them blind guides. Blind guides. And there's more to say, but let's move on. And let's note, secondly, then, the travesty of a religious casuistry. Now, that's a fancy word. It basically just means this. It refers to subtle but unsound reasoning, misleading reasoning, deceiving reasoning, and particularly it relates to those things in moral matters, in moral matters. And that's precisely what they had here. They had a complexity that amounted to casuistry, to complex system of rules that hid from the people the glory of God. And that's what he addresses here in verses 16 through 22. And again, as I had mentioned earlier, he's here in verses 16 through 22 giving a specific example of the system that he just exposed in verses 13 and 15. There he said that you keep people from entering not only from your opposition to Christ, but through this religious system that essentially blinded the people to God and you made them twice as much a son of hell as yourself when you went about and you engrafted others into this false religious system. And here in verses 16 through 22, he gives a case in point. A case in point. Basically, he's showing their practice of perverting the law of oaths that more or less fostered a system of lying. Now let's consider this. The idea of an oath or swearing is that of affirming the truthfulness of a statement by calling on a superior authority. And often it even included the idea of a pronouncement of judgment, like calling judgment onto yourself if you did not fulfill a word, your word. A standard lexicon defines it in this way, the term there. To affirm the veracity of one's statement by invoking a transcendent entity, frequently with implied invitation of punishment if one is untruthful. Now, in a 
somewhat positive sense. We see that in our culture today, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. When you're in a court of law, you take an oath, you place your hand on a Bible, and you swear yourself to truthfulness, and you are held accountable then for your statements while under oath in a unique way uh, you are held accountable by the law. Negatively, in our vernacular, we see this in a flippant way with such statements as, I swear to God I'm telling the truth. I swear to God that I'm being honest. Or so help me God if I'm lying. Or even may God judge me if I don't mean it. And such flippant statements like that, which break both commandments. One, very often of bearing false witness, a covering for a lie, and also taking the Lord's God's name in vain. Now it's important to understand that God does not forbid all swearing. Even swearing by God is not always sinful and is sometimes commended by God himself. Now I will explain that, of course, more fully. But let me give you one example that we read uh, probably a couple months ago. But it's in Hebrews chapter 6. You don't have to turn there. Just listen to me. He says here, in verse Hebrews 6, verse 13, When God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. In other words, God made an oath with himself to confirm the promise that he had given to Abraham. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. He says later, For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath is given as a confirmation is an end to every dispute. In other words, disputes are ended. Reconciliation is brought about among men by the use of oaths. In the same way, he says, God taking that system and desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that is set before us. God interposed with an oath. Men interpose with oaths when there is a dispute to settle the dispute. And there is a sense here in which God validates then the idea of the concept of oath-taking to confirm a matter that has been stated. And we won't look at these examples, but we see that throughout the Old Testament. Of course, what was just mentioned, God made an oath with Abraham, and Abraham made a covenant with Abimelech and Philcol, the leader of his army. Jacob made a covenant with Laban in Genesis 31. Jacob made a covenant with Joseph regarding the care of his bones in Genesis 47, and we see that throughout Scripture. Often it was couched in the language of, as the Lord lives, I will do such and such. We see oaths that men make with God. In Numbers 30, chapter 2, it says this, If a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. In other words, there is an oath when men make it that God expects it to be fulfilled. And God established in the law that his people should swear by no other name. Listen to Deuteronomy 6.13 in chapter 10, verse 20. First, you shall fear the Lord your God, and you shall worship Him and swear by His name. 
In chapter 10, verse 20, he says this, You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve Him and cling to Him, and you shall swear by His name. In other words, God was saying when you make an oath, you are to make that oath by no other name than the God of Israel, the God of the covenant, the God who has revealed Himself to you. And by doing that, it was essentially tantamount to affirming faith in God and one's commitment to them. So God called them to do that. He called them to do that. And there are other examples. There's even an example in Paul. Paul very often called God as his witness, which is a a form of taking an oath. In Romans 1.9, 2 Corinthians 1.23 and others. It was a kind of swearing, an oath taking, a confirmation that what he was saying was something that came with all the truthfulness of God. That he was telling the truth. However, as with every other aspect of the law, the rabbis took what was a simple command of integrity that emphasized God's holiness and they turned it into a complicated system that distorted the intent of the law and essentially created a system that fostered dishonesty, lying, deception, and manipulation. And it was of such a common occurrence not only in the Greek culture and the Greco-Roman culture in which they were, in which O's were so common uh, that they were essentially meaningless. The same thing had happened in the Jewish culture under the teaching and the influence of the rabbis and such as these Pharisees and these scribes whom he's confronting here. As a matter of fact, it was so common that this is now the second time in very important uh, sections of his gospel that Matthew records for us Jesus confronting this sin. You'll remember the first, it's back in Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, there in verse 33, again, you've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. Verse 34, but I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. He's, nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, and yes or no, no. Anything beyond this is of the evil one. Now what they had done in that case, the rabbis, through their manipulation and their complexity of rules, is they essentially had divided up oaths that were made in the name of the Lord and those oaths that were not made in the name of the Lord. And thus one, according to their teaching, was binding and the other was not. So if you said, this is in the name of the Lord when you made a promise, you were bound to it. But if you didn't say that, then you were not as bound to it. Utterly foolish. Now, Jesus is essentially addressing exactly the same sin here in Matthew 26 or 23, verses 16 through 18. It's the same error, but he's coming at it from another angle. Here, the distinction is between oaths that are binding and oaths that are not binding based to what the oath was made on. So before it was whether it was made in the name of the Lord or not, here it's what the oath was based on, which he identifies here. Verse 16, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. Whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obligated or he is bound. So it was a distinction between the temple and the gold of the temple. If one swore by the temple, they were not bound. If he swore by the gold of the temple, however, they were. Now there is 
probably a root behind this that they were reticent or careful to speak the name of God and so they added substitutes and they said things then I swear by the temple or whatever instead of saying that I swear by God. But Jesus is not rebuking them here for some false sense of reverence but for their blindness, for their manipulation and their error. Now the particular distinction here between the temple and the gold of the temple is not immediately obvious. And there have been several explanations. But I think most likely, and the best explanation is this, is that behind their teaching was the law of Korban. Now you remember the law of Korban, probably, from Matthew chapter 15. When he confronts them, again in that case, for invalidating the word of God through their traditions. And the law of Korban essentially said this, that if something was dedicated to God, that dedication to God bound that person to whatever was dedicated. So in Matthew 15, he confronts them for their law that said, whatever I have that would have helped you, my parents, is Korban. In other words, it's dedicated to God. Uh, It cannot be used then to help you. And he says, by doing that, then you broke God's commandment by not honoring your mother and your father, by not caring for them and using every resource available to you to make sure that their needs are met. But at the heart of that was the system of Korban, which said, because it is dedicated to God, I am bound to it. And I think that same thinking is behind the distinctions that they are making here in Matthew chapter 26. They say then for the temple, well, that's nothing. It's just the temple. But if we say the gold, something offered in the temple, something dedicated to the temple, well, then that makes somebody bound because that is of a different nature. And of course, this is ridiculous, but it was again very, very common. As a matter of fact, in the Mishnah, if you'll remember, the Mishnah was basically this oral tradition written down later after the time of Jesus, but it is a faithful representation of the kind of laws and uh, things that they did here at this time that Jesus is addressing. Let me give you one example. They actually have a whole tractate dedicated just to the law of making vows. Here's one example commonly cited. It says, if a man... Say, I adjure you, or I command you, or I bind you, they are liable. But if he said, by heaven and by earth, they are exempt. In other words, they're not liable. If he adjured them by Aleph and Daleth, which are the first two letters uh, of the word Adonai in the Hebrew, or by yod Hey, which are the first two letters in Yahweh, or by Shaddai, or by Sabaoth, or by the merciful and gracious, or by him that is long-suffering and of great kind, uh, kindness, or any substituted name, they are liable. And there is a whole list of those kind of laws. If you said it, then that's some way that it directly attached it to God, you were liable, but if you didn't, then you were not liable. It would be akin maybe to our taking an oath with our hand on the Bible or if we didn't have our hand on the Bible and go, ah, not my, not my problem that I wasn't truthful, that I didn't do it. My hand was not actually touching the Bible. It was, I had it off about an inch from the Bible. It was the same kind of thinking and the same kind of reasoning that they were engaged in. And it was utterly foolish. And again, because of our sin, it led to a system that was easily manipulated to practice lying and deception. Let's notice the second distinction they made in verse 18, which is essentially of the same nature. They said, if you swear by the altar, uh, you are not bound by whatever was sworn, but if you swear by the offering on the altar, then you are obligated to it. 
Again, the same idea of korban. If it's something that was dedicated to the temple, you're bound. But if it's just the altar, ah, forget it. It's just not as important. Now again, there's general distinction in both cases being made between the basic structure of the temple and the altar and those things that are dedicated to the temple and the altar, such as gold and gifts. And they put sort of this whole system, their whole complex of laws created this gradation of holiness. Like one thing is more holy, one thing is less holy, and it gets very complicated and very convoluted. And so Jesus exposes the utter foolishness of this. And he calls them blind two more times. And he adds in verse 17 that you are fools. You're fools. Completely devoid of understanding. He's saying you're ignorant, you're empty. All of your reasoning is vain. It's nothing. It has no weight to it. It's foolish. One has suggested that this phrase could be translated, you blind morons. In our vernacular, it really is akin to Jesus saying something like, you stupid leaders. You stupid leaders. These stupid laws and these stupid reasoning that you are doing to get around the clear commandment of God. And he simply dismisses it and he sweeps it away with a sense of, really, with a sense of disdain. With a sense of offense at the obnoxiousness and the error and the hypocrisy at which they had constructed this system. And the blatant fact is, is that it doesn't even make sense, either logically or theologically, which he brings out, again, in verses 17 and 19. He says, and you fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And again, in verse 19, you blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the altering? In other words, at the base of your thinking, you have it backwards. You have it exactly backwards at one level. You have elevated the thing of least importance and demoted the thing that would be, by any sense of real logic, of the greater importance. In verse 20, he says, Therefore, he swears by the altar, swears by it, and everything on it. Why? Think about it, is what he's saying. How could the offering be more holy and more binding than the very thing that makes the offering holy and binding? It doesn't make sense. It makes an obvious conclusion. Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and everything upon it. You could add to that, duh. Of course. It's illogical to make such fine distinctions. To swear by a part is to swear by the whole. And you, the teachers of Israel, should understand this. And then he says in verse 21, 22, Whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Now why does he say this? Well, he's drawing here from Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1. Let me just remind you of what that says. And he does the same thing actually in Matthew chapter 5. He says, Isaiah, thus the Lord Says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. 
He reminds them that everything belongs to the Lord. Nothing in heaven, nothing in earth, not the stars, not the gifts, not the temple, not the dirt, not the house, not your life, not the hairs on your head. Anything gets out from belonging to the Lord. Everything belongs to the Lord is what he's essentially telling them. So if you make any oath, if you make any promise, and if you say any word, it necessarily involves the Lord, as Paul would say, in whom we live and we move and we breathe and have our being. Excuse me. And it's binding. He's saying your distinctions are absolutely worthless and it shows the depth of your spiritual blindness that you don't see something so plain and obvious. A child should understand this. And yet you, these intelligent and learned men, are utterly blind to it. I mean, the point in the rebuke is so simple. It is so clear It is so straightforward that it shows how easily entangled fallen men can get in these kind of systems. But of course his point goes even much deeper than this. It demonstrates how ignorant they are of their God and of his holiness and his righteousness. And that really is the issue. And the great irony and devastation here is that the teachers of God's people the teachers who should understand these things, the teachers who claim to be experts in the law are the very ones who are blind to it. And all of this is done in the name of God and in the context of extreme religious devotion. Extreme religious devotion, yet God is nowhere a part of it. He is, in one sense, everywhere in a part of their argument, and in another sense, He's nowhere a part of it. And again, the great evil of this is that it hides God from his people. It hides his holiness. The law that should convict the sinner of their sin, that should lead them in righteousness, is being hidden. And this is how it is with all legalism. Legalism has on the outside a sense of being very dedicated to God, very committed to God. And yet, it is not. It's hiding God, it's hiding His true glory because it makes righteousness one, something attainable by man and it does not humble the heart of the sinner that leaves them devastated, trusting only in the grace of God. And that is, of course, what was happening here and it happens in churches churches throughout the land today. Now, there are several principles of application. I'm going to only mention two, however, as we come into the Lord's table. So one, there's the obvious exposure here of legalism, of their hypocrisy, of their blindness. They're using the law of God to hide Him, the Word of God, rather than to draw men to Him. But what does this teach us, and what should it have taught them? First of all, simply this, that God desires truth from His people. God desires truth from His people. This is not complicated. David prayed in Psalm 51.6, You desire truth truth in the innermost being the basic point of jesus could be boiled down to that single command that we are to speak the truth as christians we are to live in the truth and we are to live before a god of truth when god revealed his glory to moses he said this he is abundant in loving kindness and truth exodus 34 6 jesus says i am the way the truth and the life We have been given the spirit of truth. Truthfulness is what should mark God's people. And I would add as a footnote here, could you imagine if there were even one dot of darkness in the character of God and he were capable of deceiving us and lying? 
That would be the most horrible and horrific reality that I can even fathom is that there were any possibility for God to speak to us in a way that was untrue. But he does not. It's impossible, as we read in Hebrews, for God to lie. That would go against his nature. He is truth. And Jesus was truth incarnate. And we who are in professed relationship with him should be marked by that same truth. We as his image bearers should reflect his nature and speak the truth. The whole speech of a Christian, one said, takes place in the presence of the all-knowing God. And so our speech as Christians should be truthfulness that springs from a transformed heart, a relationship with Christ by the Spirit of God. Such a character, again, as Jesus instructed in Matthew 5.34, let your yes be yes and your no be no. He says it even more strongly in James 5.12. He says this, But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. And this again prohibits ungodly speech that needs to be validated by an additional oath or swearing rather than by the strength of your character and your life. That should be the measure of your trustworthiness that you have displayed the transformed character of a Christian so that when people hear you speak, they should know if you've said it, it's the truth. I don't even have to question them. They are a Christian. Exactly the opposite of what he's confronting them here for. And exactly the opposite is fallen men. Satan is a liar and a deceiver. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. And there's one thing that marks fallen nature. It is our propensity to lie and deceive. And this is what sets us apart. Let me just mention this. Psalm 19, 14. David prayed, and this should be our prayer. Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And we may not have the complexity of the religious system that we're involved with, but let me tell you, we can be tempted to the same kind of sin. When we justify lying by calling it a white lie, when we say, well, I only exaggerated a little bit to make my point or to flavor a conversation in a certain way that I wanted it to be flavor, it's lying, it's deception, and we sometimes downplay that. We lie and shade the truth sometimes by justifying that it it serves a greater good It's a better outcome if I told them the truth. That would not be good for that person. It's lying. With tax season upon us, we're always reminded of the temptation that it is for many to lie, to adjust numbers, to conveniently not report something that should be reported, making compromises, and maybe justifying it this way, considering the government gets enough anyway, they get enough of my money, and I think it's an unjust law, so therefore I'm not going to report it. It's lying. And it's deception. And so we have a thousand other ways that we can be tempted of doing the same thing and justifying it. And in each of these cases, there is a lack of the fear of God and a failure to sense His watching eyes and His perfect knowledge of Him who knows our every motive and intention and action. Lastly, and I'll mention this, and we're going to come back to this next week. It demonstrates how easy it is to get lost in that kind of stuff and miss the whole point of what it means to be a Christian. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, the simplicity of devotion to Christ. It's the simplicity of devotion to Christ. That's what it means to know Him. It's simply to love Him with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. In simplicity, it's not complicated. We should not make it so. 
One commenting on 2 Corinthians 11.3 says this, The danger of false teachers pose is that they shift the focus off of Jesus Christ and onto rituals, ceremonies, good works, miracles, emotional experiences, psychology, entertainment, political and social causes, and anything else that will distract people. End quote. And that's the case. Beloved, it is the simplicity of devoting ourselves to God who knows and sees our hearts that we walk in the truth, that we speak the truth, that we live the truth, and that we are known as a people of the truth. That we love God through Christ by the Spirit with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what it means to be a Christian and to walk humbly with Him. And everyone in this room is guilty of lying, including me, including of deceiving And it is only to the cross that we look, him who has washed us and made us clean by his own suffering, by his own death and his own resurrection. Him who spoke only the truth and ever the truth is the one who died for our sin of lying, that we might be brought near to God through him. And that's what we celebrate this morning. So let's pray, let's search our own hearts and come to the table in a worthy manner to worship our great God. Father, we thank you that you sent your Son, and our Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to go to that cross to bear the penalty for our wretchedness, for our iniquity, specifically as we've looked at this morning, for our lying, for our dishonest speech. For every time that we have spoken outright deception, every time we have deceived by shading the truth, exaggerating, or turning a conversation in a way that it leads to our desired end, rather than being focused on only being truthful and honest. We thank you that you have cleansed us. We thank you that by your Spirit you enable us to not be like that, but to speak the truth always. That you have enabled us by your word to know what the truth is and to speak your word plainly, which is to also speak the truth to the good of others. And we pray that by your spirit you will enable us to be marked by those whose character has been so transformed by the new birth that we are a people of the truth and that we are known as such. And so prepare our hearts, Lord, and if there's any area not only in speaking the truth, but any area of our lives that needs to be confessed. I pray that you would move upon us by your Spirit, bring those things to mind, that we would come to you with pure and holy hearts, and that we would worship you for the great grace that is pictured in this, the Lord's table. And we pray these things in the matchless name of Christ. Amen.